hurried because of desires that don't honor you and don't have us operating at our best. We've been angrier than we had a right to be. Please forgive us and have mercy. We're also overwhelmed this morning by your generosity, your goodness to us, all that you've given us. We wake up on a day like today and it feels good to be alive. (laughs) Maybe it feels like that every day in San Diego, Lord, but we live in Northern Virginia and this is awesome, so thank you. And it's our privilege to give back to you a token of what you've given us, a representative sample. We give back to you in the praise of our lips and in hearts given over to you as best we know how. We give our hearts to you. And we also give you, Lord, our means, our money, our time. Because all that we have is a gift from you, so we're just giving back a token that reminds us how generous you are, how much you've done. Thank you. Receive our worship this morning. In the strong name of Christ our Lord we pray, and all God's people said, you may be seated. So we're going to be talking about anger today, and I invited Paul Houndershell. (laughs) (laughs) Gateway, this is Paul Houndershell. Paul, you have been a part of and leading CR, which is a Christian recovery program for a number of years. Yes. <laughs> How'd that happen? Uh, well, anybody who knows myself and knows uh, Leanne, we have uh, over the years done a lot of things at Gateway, but probably 10 years ago, maybe longer than that. We were leading a small group at the time, and as happenstance was, the vast majority of the people in that group were either in a recovery program or at a point in life where that seemed like a likely option for them. They were kind of curious about that process and how that worked. And by recovery program, you mean something like AA? or AA, okay. it could be yeah, any of the, any any of the, the traditional okay. ones. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And some of the folks in that group were kind of struggling, particularly the ones who were in a program like that, were struggling with how do I connect what is clearly something that God teaches that I'm, that I'm seeing in these rooms with my Christian walk. And just by introduction, for those of you who don't know me, and it's probably most of you at this point in this room, but uh, I'm in recovery from alcoholism. When you go to a uh, Celebrate Recovery meeting, which is a program Leanne and I are involved in, I would typically introduce myself by, hi, I'm Paul, believer in Jesus Christ, and I struggle with alcohol. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> but anyway, to try and bring this circle around, we found uh, Celebrate Recovery at that point in time. We were trying to find something that worked in the context of what we thought would work in a small group. As happenstance was, we found out really it was meant to be a larger ministry within the church as a whole into the community, and we felt God calling us to bring it to Gateway at that point in time. And most of those folks stayed as part of that program, and we ran that program with with quite a bit of success here for five years. How, How did you end up in recovery, Paul? I discovered alcohol while I was in high school. And what I found out from uh, the beginning is it helped me deal with emotions I didn't even recognize I had. Early in life and early into my adulthood, I would, what I would say now are emotions and feelings, but I didn't have any vocabulary for that. I didn't know what to do with that. And I found out through alcohol it kind of smoothed all that out and made me think I was okay because it took all the edge off of that. Hmm. And that, I continued that pattern for quite a long time into my subsequent marriage with Leanne. And you were doing life, Paul. I was doing life. I was working. We were part of a church. We, we did a lot of functions. You were part church. of a church. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
and we had started a family. But what was happening is the ability of You're the telling me, are there people that go to church that don't have it all together? No. Okay. Yes. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, not at Gateway, but at most churches, <laughs> there are people that don't have it all together. Well, and, you know, I thought I was the only one. And I knew for a long time this was an issue. I mean, if you've got something really, going so on you, in your you life. You knew that I knew. I knew. And if you've got anything going on in your life, you know something's out of kilter. You know it's not right. And I can remember, you know, standing in the shower in the morning trying to get the, the hangover out of my head and, you know, praying to God. It's like this, you know, there's got to be a better way. Do something with this. I was just basically saying do something with this. How did you have the courage to? It was a moment in time that I just think God entered into my life because when I give my testimony, I typically say there was nothing going on on that particular day any different than any other day. But for some reason, God had an encounter with me where I just felt the, I, I felt it okay to say things were not okay and this is a mess. And I confessed that first to Leanne and ultimately ended up in a, uh, in, in a recovery program at that point in time. And this was 20, 21 years ago, I believe. And hmm. at that point in time, Celebrate Recovery was not in this area. It may have just started, but I came into recovery through AA. I have a lot of uh, respect for that. Uh, a lot of people find recovery there, and honestly, a lot of people find God there. They just don't know what to do with it because that's not part of the priority of what goes on in those rooms. Priority of AA is to keep us sober. Paul, this is the second week in a series of conversations we're going to have about dealing with emotions effectively, how to deal with how you feel. Mm -hmm. And today I'm talking about anger. Okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, uh, that makes me really mad. <laughs> <laughs> Does, uh, <laughs> Does anger have anything to do with your story? Uh, anger, yeah, yeah, anger does. Um, obviously, when you don't know what to do with your emotions, and anger is one of those things, it just it is uncontrollable. And I can remember feeling angry. I can remember probably recognizing I was angry, but it would come out inappropriately. It would come out in the wrong places, in the wrong times. And towards the wrong people. Towards the wrong people. Bless uh, you, Leanne. <laughs> <laughs> what I found out as I worked through my recovery is that you know, the drinking is symptomatic of a bigger hurt, mm. of bigger stuff going on in my life, of a bigger hole. We tend to, those of us in, in the recovery community tend to call it the God hole. And we fill that with everything else. So I filled it with al alcohol. When I wasn't filling it with alcohol, it would be anger. When I wasn't filling it with anger, it might be something else. The list can go on. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, my primary drug of choice was, was, was alcohol. What I've since found now is when anger crops up, it's telling me, there's something off kilter. Huh. What do you mean? Recovery's a daily walk. I drank every day. I made sure I drank every day. I wasn't able to get away from that until I put an equal amount of effort into getting well. And that is effort not of my own. It's effort by really turning it all over to God and saying, God, show me what to do. Put the people in my life I need to help me do it. Show me the lessons I need to be learned. So when I say it's really a daily act of letting go of that, turning it over to God, and when anger creeps up, it usually means I'm trying to take something back onto my plate. I'm trying to take control of it. And it doesn't mean, it, you know, and, and we say turning it over, it doesn't mean you don't make plans, you don't have goals, you don't proceed through life, you don't, you know, you don't have objectives you try and get through, but it means I tr I'm trusting God with the outcome of this. I'm going to do everything. I need to do. I'm going to do what he's leading me to do. 
but I'm going to trust the outcome in him. And I found that once I learned that and understood that, and that took some time, that was hugely liberating. A little advertisement, if I may. I've said this off and on over the years. It sometimes will uh, disturb some of us, but not this part, the part I'll get to in a second. But Paul, Paul and Leanne helped uh, start Gateway and have become really good friends of mine and Diane's. And Paul was an elder here for a number of years and kind of laid the spiritual foundation for what we are. That means that we had a recovering alcoholic as one of our elders. So if you're looking for a church where everybody has it all together, you're in the wrong place. Because Gateway is a church full of hypocrites. We're people that say one thing and do another. But we try our best to do better and surrender more and more to God. Thank you, Paul. You know, I'm going to be talking about uh, how to deal with how you feel. You've already done this, but let's put a period on this. What happens when you don't deal with your emotions effectively? When I don't deal with my emotions, I'm moving away from God, which means he is less a priority in my life. When that happens, I am basically taking over, and I have a remarkable ability to screw things up on my own. That hasn't changed to this day. It only stays in check when I let go of that. And I can really hurt the people around me. Mm. I can really bring um, hurt and uh, you know, just bad stuff into their, in, into their lives. So it's really important to me that I stay on track. Thank you. Let's go old school. Let's stand out of reverence for God's word. And I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. I'd love for you to look if you've got a Bible or a Bible app on your phone, but it'll be on the screen. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. It's a really short passage. It's right to the point. It's in the middle of a section where the Apostle Paul's writing a letter, and he's just lining out several things that, you know, remember this and do this, and, and this is one of the big ones for him. In fact, he attaches something to the end of it that's kind of epic. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, In your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. And don't give the devil a foothold. So God, I pray that today you would use this time to speak to us. We feel humbled before you and open. So we want to hear your voice. And Lord, we think now of those times when we choose anger. We recognize before you that it is so often a mask for another more painful, more vulnerable feeling, disappointment, hurt, frustration. We've been minimized. Our dreams have been shattered. And we don't know how to own those feelings, God, so we get angry. And we pray today for instruction. Speak to our minds honestly today, Lord, and then speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, this is the second part in our conversation on how to deal with how you feel. Healthy interactions with our emotions is vitally important to our overall health. One Christian author called a healthy interaction with our emotions the missing piece of our spiritual lives. And what he meant is often in our spiritual lives we think about how we can work on being good people, 
or we work on trying to feel connected to God, and those are critically important things, but we don't do much real work on our emotional life. Uh, We know we have emotions, and we may even try to deal with them, but it's often very superficially and very ineffectively. But healthy, deep, fully engaged interaction with our emotions is vitally important to our overall health and our spiritual development. Listen to these Proverbs on the importance of the heart. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Above all else, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of your life. Proverbs 14.30 says, A heart at peace gives life to the body, and don't we know that? 15.13 says, A happy heart makes the face cheerful, but heartache crushes the spirit. Proverbs 17.22, A cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Our emotional life is critically important to our overall health. We said uh, three weeks ago when we started this series, there were two dangers to avoid in dealing with our emotions, big picture dangers. Uh, Danger number one, we ascribe omnipotence to our emotions. Whatever our emotions tell us, we've trained ourselves to think that's reality. So I feel depressed, things are bad. I feel left out, therefore people don't like me. My emotions are absolutely true. They represent reality, and that's not always the case. A second danger we face in dealing with our emotions is denying our emotions. We just repress them. We do it so automatically from the time we were very little. It's part of our hardwiring. We don't recognize it. It's not like you and I are making conscious choices. Oh, I don't want to feel that, so I'll do so. Sometimes we do. But often it's instinctive. Anger may be especially susceptible to denial, Probably primarily because anger is a secondary emotion. I had two conversations with counselors over the last couple of weeks. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Terry Eagle and I sat down with a local counselor, and she was, it was a very wonderful, informative conversation. And then I called uh, another counselor at another point last week, and this is the first thing that both of them said about anger. It's a secondary emotion. What would you tell me about anger? Well, first of all, it's a secondary emotion. I asked one of them why. Why does anger surface? I love this answer. She said our our hurt or our frustration manifests in anger. Listen to this, because anger is more powerful. The other emotions, the truer emotions, are more vulnerable. So we jump to anger because it's empowering. In other words, we tend to deny difficult and painful emotions and push them underground, and as a result, anger surfaces. This then gets reinforced because anger is powerful. The scripture we read makes it clear that there is good anger and bad anger. He's quoting from the Old Testament, and he's repeating it and reaffirming it. In your anger, don't sin. So in other words, there's a way of being angry that's not sin. In fact, God himself got angry. Psalm 7, 11 says, God is a righteous judge, a God who expresses his wrath every day. Psalm 90 talks about how we live underneath God's wrath. Then in Exodus 4.14, God gets angry with Moses. This is the first time God got angry with Moses. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and we see a similar phrase with similar wording throughout Israel's history. God's anger and God's wrath periodically would rise up against his people, Similarly, Jesus got angry. Mark 3, 5 tells us this. He's, he's, he's healed someone, and some of his critics are all up in arms because he healed someone. And Jesus says he looked at them 
in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And this is not the only time Jesus got angry. This kind of anger is always appropriate. It's for the sake of others. It's not about me. It's for the sake of justice. It's for the sake of someone else. This is righteous anger. This is good and appropriate anger. You should talk sometime when he's here. You should go with me to have lunch with Jesse Rudy. Jesse Rudy is a former member of our congregation. He's a lawyer and works for International Justice Mission. He's in the Philippines now, heading a, a whole task force over part of the Philippines nation, in fact, over the whole nation, addressing the issue of sex trafficking. And you should hear Jesse talk about some of his cases. He's mad. He has a righteous anger because of the, the little girls that he's found in the conditions that he's found them in. But often anger is not this. In a book called, really good book, called Anger and Stress Management, author Wayne Mack, he's a psychiatrist and he's a Christian, he offers a helpful list of ways to identify sinful anger. I thought this was, I'm going to give you a few lists today, and I thought this was a good one. So this is a list of ways, you know, triggers that will let you know that your anger is outside of appropriate. It's not in concert. It's not in keeping. It's not in line with, with God's will and God's direction. Number one, our anger is sinful. Remember, sin is all that stuff we do and think and say where we find our meaning or our purpose or our pleasure or our direction apart from God. So our anger is sinful when it's for the wrong reasons, first of all. And in this section, he talks quite a bit about just selfishness, just self-centeredness. Our anger ends up being driven by us. It's not for the sake of someone else. It's about we've been offended. Secondly, our anger is sinful when it controls us. Proverbs 16, 32 points out, not only can we control our anger, but it's a very good thing when we do so. And when anger controls us, it's sinful. Proverbs 16, 13, better a patient man than a warrior. And a man who controls his temper than one who takes a city. This is in a day and age when warriors were at a premium. A man who controls his temper, a woman who controls her temper, better than a warrior. Better than a warrior that takes a city. Our anger is sinful when it becomes the dominant feature in our lives. Proverbs 19.19 suggests there's a kind of person who will not be delivered from their anger. And they'll have to pay the penalty. I love this I don't love this, but it's fascinating to me. A hot-tempered person must pay the penalty. There are consequences. There are results when your anger is excessive or directed at the wrong person or, and otherwise sinful, and it becomes dominant. It becomes the dominant feature in your life. Listen to this. If you rescue him, you'll have to do it again because he's going to be right back there. When anger becomes the dominant feature in your life... Our anger is sinful when it is brooding or fretting. Psalm 37, 8 talked about that. Don't be angry, don't fret. Our anger is sinful when it keeps a running record of how we have been mistreated. Diane and I, over the years, have developed a little image that we've used sometimes talking to couples who are having a hard time. We talk about the freezer effect, and what happens is you get offended and you ball that little offense up, and then you put it inside the freezer. And you save it. And then you get offended again, and I'm not going to deal with that, either because I don't want to, or it might even be because I'm going to be so loving and patient. But what you really do is you ball it up, and you put it inside the freezer. 
And then something really disappoints you. And it's the ninth time you've said it, and it's happened again. And you ball it up, and you put it inside the freezer. Day after day after day, until one day there is an explosion. And the next thing you know, your spouse is being bombarded with ice pellets. Because you've kept a record of wrong. Our anger is sinful when we pretend not to be angry. Ephesians 4.25, the verse right before the ones we read, says, look, let's speak the truth to one another. And we try to act like we're not angry, and we really are. Anger is sinful. Our anger is sinful when we return evil for evil or attack the person with whom we are angry. This is about 10% of what Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, his most famous sermon, is what it's about. Don't do this. This is a relationship killer. Finally, our anger is sinful when it drives us to attack a substitute. So here's how it happens. I get frustrated with one of you, and I go home and take it out on Diane. Our anger is sinful when it drives us to attack a substitute. So why? Why do we get angry? What causes us to get angry? Well, you may have a variety of reasons, but I want to give you four that presented themselves frequently throughout my thinking and reading and praying and talking to counselors. One, we don't deal with our emotions helpfully and honestly, and we push frustration or hurt or insecurity underground. This is what I talked about earlier. This is what Paul talked about. When we don't deal with the real emotion, we push it down. Anger is what surfaces. Happens through denial. This, this often happens through immaturity. We may not recognize it, or it happens through a lack of emotional discipline. Let me say a couple words about those last two. I have realized that it took me many, many years. I have a copy of an old wedding message that I gave years ago in which I say, it's the only way I remember exactly when it happened, I was married 19 years before I realized I don't tend to be a very angry person. And when I get really angry, it surprises me. And it took me 19 years to realize every time I got angry with Diane or about Diane or in our relationship, it was because I felt minimized. The first time this occurred to me, some of you have heard me tell this story before, I hope that I hid my internal chemistry enough so that it didn't frighten Diane, and I tried not to make a scene at a restaurant, but we had young children at the time. Diane and I went out to eat one night at a real nice restaurant in Boston. We were living in Boston at the time with very good friends of ours. We had three children who were ill-kept and ill-behaved, and this family had four children who were ill-kept and ill-behaved. And so we walk in, these two couples with seven kids. So everybody in the restaurant starts praying, please don't let them sit near us. <laughs> the oldest was probably about eight, seven maybe. We walk into this restaurant, and it had been a long, hard day. I don't remember how or why, but we had had... I'm not really this happy as I'm walking in, but imagine me walking into the restaurant, and we get over, and Diane, of course has had a harder and longer day than me because we're out and I don't realize it, but of course, 75% of the parenting and the rounding up and the whatever and the wiping noses, Diane's doing. 
And I've had a long, hard day, and I'm hot. She's had a longer, harder day, and she's hot. And we're going into this nice restaurant, and Diane just wants to make sure that we don't make too much of a scene. So I'm sure that there were several interactions, but the one I remember that finally just... She needs the chairs to be arranged a certain way so that we can sit and we can all take care of kids, but also adults be be able to talk to one another. And she's got nine kids crawling all over. And at one point she looks at me and says, there's nothing. But she says something like, get that chair and move that over there and move. Felt like she was talking to me like I was nine. My internal temperature went, woo! I was so mad. I'm really not sure how I didn't start turning tables over. Somehow I constrained myself so that we did not make a scene in the restaurant, but I was ticked. And when we sat down for dinner, I started doing some work. I thought, why are you so mad? I mean, you want to hit somebody. Seriously. Why are you so mad? That began for me a journey that was fairly short in discovering every time I get mad, it's because I feel minimized. I've never identified it. I've never communicated it. She doesn't intend it most of the time. And some of the times when she does intend it, it hasn't been called to her attention. So what I do is I traffic in the secondary emotion of anger instead of the primary emotion of hurt and feeling minimized, and saying to Diane, do you realize that, and so we've had conversations about this over the years that have been wonderful and freeing and great for our relationship. We don't deal with our emotions healthily and honestly. We push frustration or hurt or insecurity underground, and this happens through denial. It happens through immaturity, in my case, lack of knowledge, or it happens through lack of emotional discipline. And I've already talked to some of you, look, those of you who are parents of very young children, this is one of those things you've got to get right. You have got to train your children to understand their emotional landscape and deal with their emotional landscape. If you don't train them, then they're going to impose that untrained system on friends and neighbors and workmates and a husband or wife one day. Lack of emotional discipline. A second reason or cause for our anger is we see anger modeled and then we internalize it. So this becomes the emotional climate of the home that we're brought up in, and we learn it. Some of you got a master's degree in anger before you went to high school because you learned it at the feet of a very angry mother or a very angry father. And in some cases, you learned your lesson well. This is both as an example, but then also as a recipient. Think about that. So excessive anger comes your way as a little kid. You don't know how to process that. And you, in turn, internalize that. And that hurt and frustration gets pushed down, and it becomes then anger in you as well. Not just that you've learned it as an example, but you've got your own now. Recognizing this is not about blaming mom or dad or grandmom or aunt or uncle. In fact, to heal from this, Jesus will tell you that you've got to eventually completely forgive and let that go. This isn't about blaming. This is about getting to solution. And to get to solution, we have to first identify the problem. 
So one thing is we see anger modeled and we internalize it. A third reason that we get to anger is we don't bond healthily. We don't bond healthily. In a very informative book called Changes That Heal, the author is a well-known Christian psychiatrist, Henry Cloud. He talks about four internal shifts. It's a very interesting book. Internal shifts that make everything about the way we operate and the way we feel better. So these shifts make us better. They make us healthier. We can navigate life more easily. Cloud admits that in a healthy environment, these shifts happen for us through natural maturing processes. But many of us do not grow up in healthy environments, so we're going to have to do some work with God's Spirit in order to allow these shifts to occur. Are you with me? So let me give you the four shifts, and we're going to highlight two of them today. We'll deal with the others in another emotional topic. First one is bonding to others. Secondly is separating from others. Some of you know the language of establishing boundaries. This is what he's talking about. Third is sorting out good and bad. We'll talk about that one in a minute. And finally, becoming an adult. That's a great one, and we'll talk about that in a subsequent week. Two of these can lead to anger if they do not occur effectively in their lives. The first is bonding. This is what Cloud says about anger and the lack of bonding. Listen to Cloud. Rage or furious, uncontrolled anger is often a symptom of isolation. Remember the earlier example of Stan. He described this guy that he'd done therapy with, a client he talked about, who came to therapy for his uncontrollable anger outbursts at the most inappropriate times. Only when he faced the truth that he had some very lonely places inside and only when he felt loved and accepted did his rage begin to diminish. Another clear example of this is the infant who is left alone and expresses pure and unadulterated rage. As we grow older, most of us hide this rage, and it comes out in other more socially acceptable ways, such as cynicism or even bodily illness. Anger, a natural protest against isolation, is there nevertheless. Bonding. This is why we need Jesus. This is why I commend him to you if you don't know him. He's the only place where the deep need for true bonding can ever be met. This is what Paul was talking about, the God hole. And in Jesus, is the only place where that can really be met. Finally, a fourth reason I'll offer up for why we get to anger was Cloud's third shift. Cloud says, when it doesn't happen healthily for us, this provides more space for anger to fester. It provides the space for anger. He calls it sorting out good and bad. This is when we cannot accept the gray areas of life. We need everything to be black or white, including ourselves. And when something goes wrong, it's way wrong and it's all wrong and it's horrible. And when something is right, it's really right. It's all right. It's totally right. He has a story in here. A young man who came to him for therapy, a guy named Ted. Ted had always had the Midas touch. Everything he touched turned to gold. As a teenager, he excelled in every arena, academically, athletically, socially, even his college years, paid for by a prestigious athletic scholarship. These were unblemished by failure, he says. After college, he continued to enjoy success after success. By age 30, he was a millionaire. Respected in his community, he had married the most beautiful girl in the world and had two perfect children. He seemed to have the world by the tail. 
Then little by little, his success began to erode. Lawsuits plagued his subsidiaries. His popularity began to wane. Within a few short years, he had virtually lost his fame and his family. Filled with despair and unable to cope, Ted tried to commit suicide. At the hospital, Ted went through days of Uh, in a stupor, barely able to talk. He refused to see any of his old friends. He did not want them to see their hero in a mental health unit. As Ted began to open up about his pain, it became clear that he could not handle any failure or loss. Any threat to his ideal picture of himself only drove him to further accomplishment, thus building a house of mirrors that covered his disappointment and pain. It drove him to success for a while, but eventually to this. And he had a lot of hurt to cover up, hurt that went all the way back to his youth in a broken home. Ted dealt with the bad in himself, his family, or his surroundings by working to create more good. It had to be so. Unable to deal with an imperfect world, he became a ticking time bomb, and at age 38, he exploded. Ted had tried to build an image of a life that was all good. It couldn't be anything else. When the bad came... The fall was crippling. He felt immediately and hopelessly all bad. Listen to the list of problems that Cloud offers up that can result from a failure to sort out good and bad. He says perfectionism, extreme intolerance and judgmentalism, narcissism, anxiety and panic, guilt, sexual addiction, eating disorders, and excessive rage. Listen to what Cloud says about this. People who split good and bad have problems with excessive rage. Their frustration threshold is low. When something bad happens, there is no good in it and no good to counteract it. The person they are dealing with has all of a sudden turned into their worst enemy and their emotions are all negative. There is no love to temper the anger. So we said... We don't deal with our emotions healthily and honestly. We push frustration or hurt or insecurity underground. We see anger modeled and we internalize it. We don't bond healthily and we don't sort out good and bad. So what do we do? How do we deal with this emotion? How do we move forward less angrily? Let's all acknowledge together that for all of us and especially for those of us who have real difficulty with anger, this requires some work. It can't be the same old, same old. You've got to start doing some work. Let me give you some suggestions this morning. You may have some others, and we'll end with this. Number one, do not hang out with an angry person. Proverbs 22, 24, and 25 says this. Do not make friends with a hot-tempered man. Do not associate with one easily angered, or you may learn his ways and get yourself ensnared. Do not hang out with an angry person. This becomes another example of internalizing it. I heard a counselor one time say, we actually had a marriage conference a number of years ago at Gateway, and a best-selling author came in and did this for it. Was great. It was great. Those of you who were there, I don't know if you remember this, but one of the things I remember, it was very stark. It was, kind of, it was like a parenthesis. It wasn't part of his talk, but he, he says at one point, kind of interrupting himself, he says, listen, if I could give any advice to you young women, I think this goes both ways, honestly women and men, but he addressed it to young women. He said, if I could give any advice to young women, do not marry an angry man. Now, for some of us, that's already happened. So we have to begin to do work together. But if you have a choice, don't marry an angry man or don't marry an angry woman. 
This is what some of us do with our workmates. We gather around the coffee table and we rehearse our anger. This is what some of us do with the news we watch. I have literally gone through periods of time. I've told some of you this before. I've literally gone through periods of time when I just can't watch the news. For a long period of time, I just don't watch the news because it just ticks me off. And some of you repeatedly, over and over again, listen to people whose job it is to tick you off. That's how they get you coming back. One author I know calls it outrage porn. And you and I get addicted to it. And we rehearse the anger that we hear over and over in them and from them. We have to ask ourselves a series of questions. Are there angry people in your life? Are you in environments that encourage and nurse anger in you? Then the the practical advice here is this is work you must do. Step away from the anger in your environment. Again, if you're married, you'll have to deal with this as a couple. It's not possible for you to step away, but it's still possible for you to get healing if both of you are working on this together. This is work you must do. Step away. Don't do this in the news you watch. Don't do this at work. Don't do this in your friendships. Don't do this on Facebook. Step away. Secondly, don't hang out with an angry person. Second, accept the the gift of limits. Accept the gift of limits. You're limited. Accept it. Don't just accept it like, oh, shoot, I'm getting older and I can't do it anymore. But accept it like, welcome it. Find the joy in it. Jesus is the model for us. Jesus had limits and he readily accepted his limits. This is why Jesus regularly retreated from crowds. Throughout the biographies of Jesus, you see Jesus saying, this is enough, I'm tired, I, I, gotta, I need to get away and you stay away from me. Jesus didn't heal every sick person. Jesus didn't let some people follow him. The mere fact that he was incarnate, fancy word meaning that he squeezed himself into human skin into a particular place and time, meant he limited himself dramatically. And yet, on the last night of his life, Jesus prayed this, I have completed the work you gave me to do. You get the impression that what mattered to Jesus wasn't the limits and what he couldn't do, but what mattered was the mission and what he was designed to do. His limits did not inhibit the mission. We are physically limited, and we get old and even lose the few capacities that we had. We have a limited skill set. We're not as good as many people at doing many things. And it's okay. This doesn't prevent us from doing what God has designed us to do and from being all that we long to be and all that we were created to be. We have moral limits. We make mistakes. This is not a good thing, but God still loves us. God still longs to show us favor, and this doesn't prevent us from doing what God has designed us to do. The same is true for others around us. They have limits as well. So while we do work to accept our own limits, we have to also accept the limits of those around us. Do you have difficulty accepting limits? Do you struggle with not being good enough or smart enough or young enough or tall enough or good-looking enough? Does this kind of thinking dominate your thought life? Then, this is work. You must allow God's spirit to do in you. You cannot do this work. (laughs) So allow God's spirit to train you to receive and know his love for you. Surrender. 
Be still, my heart, and know you alone are God. Stop thinking so much and just let go. Third, check your anger meter. Proverbs 29.11 says this, A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. You have the capacity to keep your anger under control. To allow your anger to do any of those sinful mechanisms does damage to you, it does damage to your connection to God, and it does damage to the other people in your life. So in checking your anger meter, I mean specifically check with people you know and love. This should be a small group conversation. Here at Gateway, this should be a small group conversation. Once a year, in every small group, there should be a time when some husband and wife walks into a small group and one of them says, okay, I blew up on the way here. She thinks I got too angry. What do y'all think? And then the small group has got to be brave and say, yeah, we've seen it here half a dozen times. To which the response is going to be something, if it's real life, the response is going to be something like, what are you talking about? Okay, there, that's what I mean, (laughs) exactly that. If you have a bad argument and your partner says, why are you so angry? Stop, stop, check that, check your anger meter. Could be that your anger meter is stuck on two or five. Here's what I mean. Because we've internalized, because we're pushing our frustration down, because it's been modeled for us, whatever the reason, because we didn't bond effectively. However we got there, for some of us, we are launched into our adult life with our anger meter stuck on four. So here's what happens. You go along, you look like a really nice person. Now you're walking along like I was walking in Boston. And you're just having fun, and y'all are having a great day. And all of a sudden, you receive a level two offense. You're at six because your anger meter is stuck on four. You don't respond at two. You respond at six. You start at four. So anything that adds on top of that, bam! And trust me, The people around you know it. For those of you who anger meter is stuck on seven, regularly the people around you are going, get me out of here. Because you receive a level three offense, you're at ten. You've just gone thermonuclear. Do you find yourself getting angrier than you need to be? Does your anger interrupt situations or relationships? Have you had others tell you you're too angry? This is not to your shame. You're not the only one here that has problems. Just about every problem we're going to mention, Paul had. (laughs) And me too. You're not alone. This doesn't mean you're a terrible person. If you have difficulty sorting out good and bad, then when someone tells you that you have an anger problem, what you automatically hear is, you think I'm horrible. That's not what they said. I married you. I think you're terrific. You have an anger problem. This is work you must allow others to speak into. There's work you must do. There's work you have to surrender and let God's Spirit do. This is work You have to allow God's people to speak into. Check with your friends. Check with your family. Get counseling. Do I have an anger problem? This is the question that we need to be asking others who love us and know us. 
Finally, quickly, fourth, get some exercise. There is a physiological chemical response to anger. Adrenaline is released. Our blood pressure is raised. I had someone tell me they thought they were addicted to adrenaline some time ago. A friend who said, and this was not a joke. This was confession. I feel like I'm addicted to adrenaline. And I said, what do you mean? Long pause. And he said, every single morning, I wake up and I find the most troubling email I can find and I read it. 